Good morning, friends. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Faith. Okay, so um, if you don't know, um, we feel like the best way at Redemption Church to understand the Bible is to go through it. So um, we feel like and believe this, that um, uh, taking a, a, a chapter, a book, uh, and going just verse by verse, um, systematically, exegetically is the, the term that's used there, is really a good way for us to get our mind around the whole canon of Scripture. And that requires a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of time. And, it, and um, we believe at the same time, though, there's a lot of payoff. We feel like faith comes, well, according to Romans ten fourteen, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of God. And so that's what we want to do. Now, I say that because uh, currently we are in the book of Psalms, but um, the reality is we're, we're not going through all of the entire book of Psalms, right? There's, it would take far too long for us to do that. So we've picked 10 Psalms over the summer to go through. Um, I'll be teaching five of them possibly six. And then we have other teachers who's been going through. A guy named Josh Watt was here last week. If you weren't here, um, he walked us through Psalm 13. And, and this morning we're in Psalm 19. And here's the premise, y'all. I'm going to kind of show my cards early. Psalm 19 is about God's word, okay? So if you're looking at that Psalm, you'll see it's broken up into three sections, uh, verses one through six, then seven through nine, or seven through 10, sorry, and then 11 all the way to the end, which is uh, 14, okay? And we're going to go through those sections. Um, but here's what's great about the book of Psalms and even Psalm 19 specifically. The the book of Psalms is not interested in so much telling us what to do, but rather just telling us how it is. So the term is imperatives. When I tell my kids to do something, I'm giving them an imperative. The book of Psalms is not giving us imperatives. It's just telling us reality. And and this morning, it's going to give us the reality of God's word. Okay. And and I don't just mean the book, though, though um, we're going to talk about the Bible and that's a big chunk of it. I mean, the way God communicates with us. That's the goal of this morning is to get at um, what's going on when God is trying to and is communicating with us, okay? So this is how Psalm 19 starts. If you already have an open, you can go there, uh, um, uh, chapter 19. So what it says, 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Here's where I want to start. If you were to open up your Bible, um, you're going to find something really cool um, happens, and you don't even probably recognize it right away, and that is, as hard as we want to in our culture, try to give an apologetic or in a defense and belief for those of us who believe there is a God, maybe you don't in this room, but if you believe in God, you want a defense or a belief that there is a God, the Bible does not give one, okay? So the Bible from the jump doesn't open up and go, now here's how you can know there's a creator. Now, now that you know there's a creator, here's how you can know that, that he is God. Here's how this God is, is belongs Jehovah God. It doesn't do that. From the jump, it just gives you there's God, and he starts creating things. And you're maybe left, um, if you're kind of processing things quickly, going, wait a minute, how do I know God exists? But the reality is he's not interested in telling you. He's just going, hey, I exist, and here's what I do. Now, furthermore, he doesn't even really very early on give us descriptions of who he is. So he doesn't say, so I'm a creator. Nice to meet you. I exist. Um, I also am a giver. I'm also faithful. No, rather, he unfolds this narrative of Scripture and says, watch me. He says, watch how I act. See who I am. And we as readers, we as followers are drawing conclusions from that. So what we immediately come to find out is that he's a giver, right? He is a creator. He's faithful. He loves good things. We find out uh, very early on in Genesis 3 that, that he does not like when people disobey. He has, he has this plan set for their joy, and he doesn't want people to run from that joy. He's created all things for him. And then one of the things that we find out that he is not is he is not deistic, okay? So that's a $100 word, and I want to do my best to explain these words. So deism is my best um, attempt to define it, is the belief in the existence of a supreme being, i.e. a creator, who does not interact with his creation, specifically mankind. So people who, who hold to deism um, have been, hold to, have been uh, said to believe that God is like a watchmaker who winds up a watch, creates this watch, lets it down, and just says, it ticks, it ticks. What happens, happens, right? And what we find out immediately, though God doesn't tell us this is how he is, but we see in the story, he is not deistic. And to hold to a biblical worldview, that would be insane. As we read the Bible, we go, wow, like, like he is very much involved with his creation. Now, how he's involved is really cool because he speaks all of these things into existence. He's speaking the trees. He's speaking the animals. And then he's, he, he's speaking the stars in the sky. And he's speaking the planets into motion. He's speaking. He's speaking. He's speaking. And what Psalm 19, 1 through 4 tells us, but a, millennial, a millennium later, as David proclaims, is the moment he spoke those things into existence, they have been echoing their voice back to us ever since. He said, stars exist. And those stars had said to us, God exists. And Psalm 19 is telling us this. That as we look to the heavens, as we see that it's declaring something. And what it's declaring specifically is found in verse 1. It declares the glory of God. The skies above 
Proclaim his handiwork, God's glory. See how great he is. See how big he is. You think your world is so awesome, but the universe is vast. You don't even, you're not even looking at stars that exist right now. They're long gone. They're so far away. He's so big. He's so bad. He's legit. He is awesome. Here he is. He's created these things. Look at his glory. Look how cool he is that he can create certain animals that have to live with air and certain animals that can't live outside of water. He has created these things. Look at him. And that is what creation is doing, his handiwork, his glory. And it's doing this according to verse two, day after day, night after night. It's revealing this knowledge over and over and over. Guess what? You are either in day or in night or somewhere in between. Okay. You're, you're, you're either looking at the stars, you're looking at the sun, or you're, the clouds are blocking it, but you're in between. I mean, there's, there's, there's somewhere in that the, the, the skies above, as a canopy above us, are proclaiming this truth over and over and over. And there is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. So this is the part we don't like, right? Though that is true, though the heavens are proclaiming, the stars are shouting, the sun is telling us something, the reality is we don't hear anything. It's proclaiming this truth, but it's a, it's a speech that has no speeches. It's a sound that is soundless. It's words that we can't hear. It's, it's this noise that is not audible. What is going on, God? I know you're there. But we get lost in that fact, right? We get frustrated in that fact. But the reality is, let's just stop and contemplate this idea that God, according to Psalm 19, 1 through 4, is trying to communicate with us. He's trying to communicate with us. This is awesome. Now, um, I remember I got saved. Uh, I was 16 years old. I'd only been saved for like four months. And so for the first time, I was going to read the Bible through. And I remember very early on getting uh, in Genesis, getting to the story of Noah. Now, I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't really know the story of Noah. You kind of hear about this thing. And so, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm reading the story of Noah, and I get to the part where God promises Noah, promises all of mankind, he'll never flood the earth with a rainbow before. And I was like, What? So you're telling me every time we see a rainbow, that's God from that story saying he'll never flood the earth again. So I, I went to uh, uh, my pastor at the time. I'm like, dude, I don't know if you know this, but, <laughs> but we got some like serious proof that God's real. Every time we see the rainbow, that's proof that he's telling us. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, no, you don't understand, bro. Okay. So I remember being so excited that God is communicating. He's communicating. Now, frustrating as this may be that it is, it is soundless and it doesn't have this audible tone to it, understand that, that um, I don't even know if that would be the answer. I mean, see it kind of from the perspective. The reality is here's the United Nations. They're going to gather trying to solve the world's problems and they're going to speak audibly, but they speak different languages, right? So there's still going to be frustration. Interpreters are still going to be uh, required. So, so the audible part, we don't even know if actually would help. God could still speak to us, but we doesn't mean we would necessarily still even understand what he is doing. To be honest with you, in the Old Testament, we find God does audibly speak to people and they still go off and act like morons. So we don't even know that 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 is the answer. Furthermore, we recognize, according to Psalm 1 through 4, that there are moments that audibleness or speech or sound isn't even required. And we have to use sounds and speech and language and words to describe the fact that we don't need words. We say things like, I'm speechless. Right? Okay, so, so, so there are moments where we have to stand in awe and we go, I don't know what to say. Right? So there's something, and this is what Psalm 19, 1 through 4 is telling us. I spoke these things into existence, and they are reminding you that I did that. 
They are proclaiming to you. Creation is telling you something, that it exists. And hear me, um, I can understand, like, those of you um, with more of an analytical mind want to kind of bend towards the sciences, right? Like, this, this can be seen as maybe an ontological argument that there has to be an uncaused cause to create that cause. And the reality is I don't think that's what David's going for. He's just saying, look at creation. It's telling us something. It's telling us something. And if we can just rest in that, that God is communicating and this isn't the first time that he um, used, in Job, he uses a whirlwind. In, in Exodus to Moses, he uses thunder and lightning. Um, we see this at moments where he speaks in a still, small voice. There, there's an idea that we don't like the way that God would communicate this. We feel like, God, is it like I look at you and I know something within me. My heart beats. And Arizona has nailed, has nailed the sunset game, right? So we, we look at the sunsets and we go, wow, like 10 different shades of red. My face feels like it's melting off, but what I can see, it's beautiful, right? So there's this sense that we see and we just, we love it, or we drive out far enough from the city and we see so many stars in the sky. We didn't even know that many existed. There's just this craziness to this and we go, God's real. God's real. He exists. I I know it. I I may not fully understand it all, but but there's something more than this. And, And whether we like it or not, this is what Psalm 19 is proclaiming. He is giving us a message. His words are coming to us. It's awesome. Now, I think there's some flavor to this because it's really beautiful what those words do. And uh, uh, we find this at the end of verse 4 in in moving into verse 5. It says this. In them, he has sent a tent for the sun. So again, he's using some poetic language. He'll continue to use poetry uh, here. So he's saying the skies have set up so that the sun can move and the stars can move. And it looks like they're inside of this tent, right? Um, Which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Okay? Those two last two words are really cool because here's what happens. Um, Redemption Peoria specifically, we're a younger congregation and so... We, uh, we got a lot of uh, younger couples who are looking to get married. And so myself and the elders this last year and continue, my guess is the next 20 years, we'll be doing a lot of weddings. But specifically over the next two years, there's a lot of weddings. Uh, Jim's doing a ton of premarital counseling and um, uh, these couples. And here's what's going to happen. When, when one of us as elders does one of these weddings, we're going to sit, uh, we're going to go in with the, the bridegroom and there's going to be a moment where we have to walk the, the, the groom up to the altar. And they're in this dressing room. And according to uh, um, uh, at David's time, if you can just see the bridegroom leaving his chambers, chambers like a dressing room, just the best way to understand that. And we're going to leave that. And and as we leave the the dressing room is chamber, we're going to go up to the altar and what's going on inside of all you grooms who are getting ready to, well, all of you men who are getting ready to be grooms, what's going on within you? What's going on inside of you? The, The fact that it's here, like there's a joy, there's a nervousness, there's a reality to it. There's a weight to it. This is what the heavens are telling you they are trying to communicate. It's with joy. They're going, don't you understand? Can you not see how beautiful this is? How much he offers. Furthermore, it's like, like a runner. And it says a strong man. I don't think like of a heavyweight, a bodybuilder, but somebody who is trained and they finish the race and the alleviation they feel it's done. I, I've told you guys I've ran the canyon uh, before and there's nothing like looking at that last quarter mile, getting to the top after running for hours, wanting to kill yourself. And you get up to the top and you're like, 
it's done. And like endorphins hit you and you feel like you want to collapse. There's something within you that goes, yes. I mean, this is, maybe you don't, you think it's cheesy that a guy like LeBron James would cry, but this is why the LeBrons and the Michaels and the Kobe's cry after they win these championships because they put so much emotion, so much time, so much energy, so much effort, physical exertion into winning this, that when it's done, that dude who was such a grown man 20 minutes ago is weeping like a little baby because it's done. He's finished it. The joy, everything he set out to do. And this is what the heavens are saying. I'm offering you that. I'm offering you that. You know what a bridegroom feels? I'm offering you that. You know what a runner at the end of his race feels? I'm offering you that. You may have synthetic versions of that. You may have fireworks of that. But I promise you, when it's all said and done, this is better. This is what I'm proclaiming. I am offering you that kind of joy. What poetry. As God sets this in motion, that all things are meant to glorify him. And as all things glorify him, they find their utmost joy. That is cool. Now, it's not just set right for a couple of us to see, but here's... The, uh, the beauty of all this, because this joy in verse 6 um, is said uh, to be preached to everyone. Um, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So um, Wednesday night, I got really sick. Um, and I was sick all day Thursday and all day Friday. And what's hilarious is, um, well, so my uh, Cor- Corbin uh, was also sick and Eve was also, well, that's not the hilarious part. Corbin and uh, Eve were also sick. Us three were sick. Okay, there's six people in our family. And um, Candace, my wife, was really trying to avoid getting sick. So, so um, you know, she's avoiding drinking certain, drinking uh, our glasses, and she's trying to keep her distance. You know, no kissing. I'm like, oh, yeah, wait till you fall asleep. I'm going to kiss you. Okay. Um, okay. So, right, so she's avoiding all, all you know, she's avoiding all this. But, but um, on Friday night, our block, for whatever reason, had a power outage. I don't know if a fuse blew or whatever. Um, but our, our block had it. And so there's no lights, okay? So I'm laying down. I'm, I'm kind of feeling like I'm on the up, recovering a little bit. Um, but, but she's getting ready for, for bed in the bathroom. And I just hear her go, ah, oh, dang it. And I go, what? Okay, so all this time, she's been drinking clay, whatever that means, okay? She, like, wants, like, she wants to, like, work in the naturopath field, and so she's, like, trying all these essential oils. Oh, Lord, don't get me started on the essential oil thing, okay? Um, so so she, she's been doing all this to avoid it. She's in the bathroom. <laughs> I still laugh. I cracked up with it. She goes, oh, dang. I go, what? She goes, I couldn't see. I'm using your toothbrush. And I died. Okay. I said, that is awesome. Uh, so, so here's what's great. Here's what I think for verse six. It's saying that you, you could try as hard as you want, right? In, in, in a fan, in a home of six, when three of us are sick, you can try not to get sick. Okay. But you're probably going to get sick, okay? And, and what's, what's being said in verse 6 is this is going to everyone. And you can try to not see this. You can try to not feel this. But you're going to see it. And you're going to feel it. And you're going to have to suppress it if you don't want it to be true, right? And the reality is this is going. The sun, it, it, it affects everything and everyone. Our, our earth gets its uh, heat from it. Everyone feels the warmth from it. We, we see things because of it. The moon reflects its, its light. It, it, it's, it's every, and so uh, because of that, where the sun goes, everything is affected. And it is true that all of us feel that weight. And that's what verse 6 is trying to communicate. This truth that God's word is going out, it is going to everyone. Everyone has the opportunity to, to hear that word, to, to respond to that joy, 
right? And God's regenerative work um, is beautiful in, in, in using that. So this is what happens uh, from there as he goes on. Uh, as it says, in the rising of the end of the, the heavens and the circuit of the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. And then he goes on in verses 7, 8, and 9 to kind of turn on a dime for us. Now, this is important for us because um, we're going to go from this word being up in the heavens, and David, contextually, just understand, really only has the first five books of the Bible. And when I mean the first five books, I mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, and Deuteronomy. And he probably doesn't even have those first, all of them, um, but, but he has parts of them. And he, what he knows of the law is now what he's going to talk about. So this is important. He's going to talk about how God is trying to communicate from the skies when we look up the speechless sound that offers us joy. Now that sound, that communication, that voice God has given us in written form. And so now he's going to talk to us about that written form. Uh, I want to show you something that um, I had asked Josh to put together. It's uh, verses 7, 8, and 9, and it's kind of specific in how you can read it. So um, 7, 8, 9 is the three verses, but in each verse, it has this kind of declaration. Now, I can't spend a terrible amount of time on, on this due to time, but because um, we're going to go through Psalm 9, uh, 119, I want us to kind of see this rhythm. Um, in Psalm 119, it's full of this. Um, I would argue this is early deductive reasoning, the way that this is set up, okay? Um, and so uh, if you don't know what deductive reasoning is, uh, the example I gave in first service is, uh, I think, um, uh, Phil stole a pin from the office. If you steal a pin from the office, you get fired. Therefore, Phil is going to be fired, right? So that's deductive reasoning. We are able to deduct. And I think in a lot of ways, this is early deductive reasoning uh, um, in what David, I don't even know if he's doing it, but by the power of Holy Spirit, we've kind of have some of this. And, and so um, we have kind of four parts for each section. So the blue you can see are all ways that David is going to describe God's physical word, his written word. So we have uh, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, um, I would still argue is the word because it's more than just a written. Uh, the Jews would see this word as, because they're in an oral culture, as something that affects, it's, it's back and forth. And so it's, it's way more nuanced than just this written idea of a word, but the, the fear and then the rules. And you'll notice every single one is of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. And then it has a description of each time it uses that word. So the law of the Lord is perfect, right? Those are on the yellow. It's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, or true. And then there are repercussions. And those repercussions are the deductive reasoning results, um, as I would argue. Because it's perfect, it revives the soul. Because it's sure, it makes wise the simple. Because it's right, it rejoices the heart. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so that's kind of how, how we can see those. I want to very quickly go through them. I promise we're going to get this kind of stuff in Psalm 119 in spades. We're going to get it like crazy. Um, it's the largest book in the entire, uh, largest chapter in the entire Bible, and it's just full of all of this, literally. It's just this for, for um, well over 100 verses. So let's start with the first one. Um, the law of the Lord is perfect. That word perfect has way more to do with complete. So the law of the Lord is uh, complete. And because it's complete... Because it's not halfway. Because when you read the Bible, it's, it's, it's full, it's complete, it's dense. It revives not just your actions. It doesn't revive just your emotions. No, 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 that thing goes way down deep and revives your soul. It's complete. It's perfect. Some of your Bible translations, I know one, the NIV, NLT, I think the NASB, some say it restores the soul, it returns the soul, it refreshes the soul. It, it, it reminds us of who we are. When we read the Bible, we go, oh, that's the way things are supposed to be. It's perfect. He goes on to say this, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If I can lean my hand on one thing, that as I read the story of the disciples, they're uneducated men, yet according to Acts, they flip the world upside down. 
that they are simple folk, but because of what God has told them to do, the word of God, they're considered wise. You can bet on that. It is sure. It is a sure bet. Goes on to say this, the precepts of the Lord are rights, rejoicing the heart. This is simple enough, right? Because they are the right thing to do, um, it is right to do the right thing. I, I wish I had some like crazy exegetical uh, compilation and how to explain that. But the reality is we know when we live into the way that we're supposed to, there is a rightness about that. That's actually what Romans 1 talks about. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. That word pure means clear, like non-polluted. Matter of fact, the NIV says this, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. When you read the Bible for the first time ever, maybe, you start to see things the way they're supposed to be. So you have these views on things, right? Like you have a view on, on immigration and, and politics and Fallujah. You, you, you have uh, uh, opinions on parenting and, and husbands and wives. But the reality is the word of God is, is the one that's filtering all those, those discrepancies out. And for the first time ever, you see things the way you're supposed to see them. They're radiant your eyes, uh, enlightening your eyes to see rightly. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Um, it's not clean like, like an axe body wash. It's, it has way more to do with uh, um, it's perfect, right? And so because of that, because perfection is not convoluted by sin, sin brings death. Because that's perfect, it's going to last forever. Um, we'll actually talk a lot about, he uses that term again. We'll see it in Psalm 119. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This is beautiful. If you think of the word righteous as right living, uh, this is great because right living, to, to say that you are living the right way assumes that there is a right way. And assume there is a right way is to assume there's a wrong way. Therefore, you are assuming there's a truth. And the Bible in this moment is saying, hey, bro, I know the truth. I know what is the right way. So according to the Bible, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So you want to know how to live a righteous life? It's found in scripture. And because of all these things are true, verse 10, they are more to be desired or more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I put in my notes for verse 10. It is what it says it is. I mean, honestly, like it's better than any amount of money. I, I, I mean, I've been in churches on Sunday morning where they've given the example, you know, the guy gets up and he'll put a hundred dollar bill and go, well, I got a hundred dollar bill up here. Who wants that hundred dollar bill? Come up and just take that. And people start rushing to the stage like, see, you want that hundred dollars more than you want the Bible. It's like, oh Lord. Okay. So, um, so, so, so the, the point is, yes, we, we, any type of monetary value, the, the point of, of the scripture is saying this, think of how hard you work for money. Think of how hard you, you put in hours every single day for monetary things, for gold, right? Well, not the American dollar gold, but right, okay, that doesn't make any sense because it's not backed by gold. But, but, we, but, but, but right, we, 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 we're working for money, for, for currency. And the reality is, as, as we, we, we do that, it's better than that. And, and maybe you don't care about money, but maybe you like chocolate, right? So it's, it's even better than sweets. It's better than honey, the finest honey you can ever have. It's better than that. And it's better than that because it offers joy. And the way it offers joy, it defines joy, is because it revives your soul, man. It makes you the wise simple. It rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. And it's righteous altogether. That is it. It communicates in such a way, proclaims in such a way, gives life in such a way that we go, yes. May we listen to that. Now, um, the third part of the, the, this chapter is David sees all of that truth and he responds. Now I want to read something to you from a guy named C.S. Lewis. Um, 
Uh, this is what he says in, in his book, Mere Christianity, talking about um, God's word speaking, specifically going back to verses 1 through 4 in a creational sense. And, and, and um, his story specifically is he had friends who were atheists um, who held a Darwinian evolution who would look at creation and go, nah, um, but also would look at creation sometimes and go, I, you know what, I believe in the, scientifically this is what, what has gone on, but the reality is sometimes I look and I go, man, this is crazy. There is, like, maybe there's this being, I don't know, right? And so that's where he He's saying this quote from um, kind of his context, but this is what he says. One reason why many people find creative evolution so attractive is that it gives one much of the emotional comfort of believing in God and none of the less pleasant consequences. When you are feeling fit, the sun is shining on you, or the, the sun is shining, and you do not want to believe that the whole universe is a mere mechanical dance of atoms, it's nice to be able to think of this great mysterious force rolling on through the centuries and carrying you on its crest. If, on the other hand, you want to do something rather shabby, uh, I put in parentheses they're wrong, shabby or wrong, the life force, quote-unquote, being um, only a blind force with no morals and no mind will never interfere, interfere with you like that troublesome God we learned about when we were children. The life force is a sort of tame God. You can switch it on when you want to, but it will not bother you all the thrills of religion and none of the costs. So his point is this, right? Um, the fact that God is speaking, the fact that God is trying to communicate with us demands us not just to hear, but furthermore, to respond. It cannot just be out there. This cannot just exist. God's word cannot just go forward and you go, eh, because the reality is when push comes to shove, you, you, you're going you're gonna to stand before him and be held accountable one way or the other. And so here, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis is saying it's, it's nice for those of you who don't hold outright to God because you can go, yeah, there might be, maybe, I don't know. But when you want to do what you want to do somehow, you know for sure there's no God. Or at least you're shutting him off. And David says, I can't do that. I recognize God exists and that demands something. Whatever it is. If he says we all need to become animals, I better figure it out. So it demands something of us. And so this is what David says. He, he, he knows God's word is coming forward. He says, I got to respond. And so he prays. He begins to ask God according to that word for that word to do things within him. And he does um, in, in verses 11, 12, and 13, I think he, he asks it to, to, to do three things. He asks God for it, the word to do three things. Uh, verses 11, 12, and, and 13, three different things. And here's what I want to do. Um, instead of just reading them and breaking them down, which we will, I want to also add the fact that there's some presuppositions that David is, um, is saying that, that we might miss if we just read these texts that we don't have in this, in this passage. And I'm going to go through each one. There's one in 11, one in 12, and one in 13. The first one is this, uh, verse 11. Moreover, by them, God God's word, his words, his his precepts, his testimony, his law, um, uh, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. The first presupposition that David has is he knows his word as his word. He wants to stay as far away from sin as possible. And I don't think we have that presupposition. Meaning this, if I was to take the rest of this chapter, this is how I would say David would sum up. I'm not saying I'm right. This is not canon, but this is how David would sum up the rest of this chapter. This would be his prayer. Show me how to get as far away from sin as possible. David is going, because that's true, because your word is good, I want to follow it. It's going to help me get close to you. Show me how to get as far away from sin as possible. And I would contend that, for the most part, is not our presupposition. I would argue, and I'm not saying this is for everyone, but for the most part, it goes a little closer like this for us. Show me how close I can get without sinning. 
Now, now the, the low-bearing fruit in, with this is always sex, right? Because when you deal with, with uh, uh, whoever, um, who, people who want to get married, who are in a relationship, and who want to have sex, they're going to usually, not always, ask the question, well, how far is too far? Like, at what point am I sinning? Like, can I hold her hand? Can we kiss? First base okay, right? And you're, and you're sitting there, and they want to know how close they can get until it becomes sin. But David is thinking completely opposite. There's a huge dichotomy. David is not going, wait a minute, I don't want to get as close as possible. Like, so he's avoiding this. He's not asking, yeah, okay, and sin. Okay, I can go right here. No, he's saying, show me through your word as far as possible. Help it guide me because I want to stay away from that. That is a huge deal. May the word of God do that for us as well. Not, not give us parameters to show us how close we can get, but rather guide us to show us how far we can be, right? And so it's, uh, again, reading it, by them your servant is warned and keeping them there is great reward. The Bible will warn us. It will, it will give us parameters. Uh, God will continue to speak and show us how we need to act in that way. Uh, verse 12, the second one says this, who can discern his heirs? This is David still praying. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. The second one uh, is this. If you hold to a biblical worldview, meaning you believe the Bible is true in the way it speaks about the world, um, you cannot hold to relativism. Meaning you cannot believe one thing, I believe this is true, and then a completely contrary idea, you believe that is true, and then I believe something else, and then you believe something else. You cannot do that because the reality is God says, no, I got truth. I got the monopoly on that, bro. You don't got it figured out. You succumb to and submit to what I've said is true. And David in this moment recognizes that when he says, I can't even discern my own ways. So not only is relativism ridiculous, two plus two is three to me and five to you. No, dummy, like that, that's not the reality of it. The reality is as we submit to God, we see, I can't even, I can't even recognize there are things within me that I'm sinning now, that, that there, there are hidden faults that I need the Bible to reveal to me because I can't even on my own decide absolutely what is right because when I do that, I'm still deciding what is wrong. I'm, I'm still thinking this is right, but, it, but it's wrong. And so, so David makes this declaration. And then the, the third one, last one, he says this, keep back your servant also from presuppositions, a fancy word for deliberate or willful sin. So keep back your servant from uh, deliberate or willful, willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me. This is the last point before we go to um, the end of 13 and 14 and we'll, we'll start to wrap up. Um, David's presupposition is different from ours in, in that David is extremely afraid of sin. And I know how that sounds, um, like if you grew up in church, like, no, Jesus is better. But the reality is like, um, and the Bible speaks of sin kind of crazy sometimes. It speaks of it like it's a living organism. Like at one moment in, in Genesis, it, it, God is talking to Cain and he says, hey, Cain, be careful. Listen to what he says. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires. It does like sin desires. Like a desire would be only equated to like a a, a being of some kind, and it desires to overtake you. R Romans talks about that, that you can become a slave to sin. David knows this. He knows there ain't no playing around with this stuff. Not us. Man, if you plan to be in this with me for the next 50 years, and we plan to do this on Sunday morning every single week, I promise you there'll be two things that we will talk about. Sin is not something to play around with, and the grace of God is better. And, and you continue to mess around with this idea. You are coming from a completely different point than David is. David is saying, God, I need to be guarded from this stuff because here's the reality. Listen to the language he uses. It will subdue me. 
No drunk I've ever talked to after they've been in, in recovery for years said, man, when I look back at my life, I knew I held up a beer after five years of drinking and said, once I drink this beer, I'll officially be an alcoholic. No one has ever done that. No, the reality is by the very laws of logic, you can't recognize you have a problem until you have a problem. So, so for, for us to just go, well, I can kind of dabble. No, no, listen, dabble, bro, dabble. But it will own, it will consume, it will take over, and slowly but surely it will kill you. It will subdue you according to the Bible. It will be your master. You will be its slave. You will have to succumb to it, subjugate yourself to it. You have to live into it every day. Try to fight against it, but it will own you. And David knows this, so he says, please, by the power of your word, let me follow it. Let let me believe it. Let me know it to be true because that stuff is not to be messed with. But we, we, we fondle it. We play games with it. We're cool with it. It's just not so. This stuff will mess us up. And maybe your friends don't believe it. Maybe your family don't believe it. But you as a child of God better start believing it because I promise you, he cares about you enough to cut off your hands for your soul to enter the kingdom of heaven. He does. He, he, He will rebuke you. He will make sure you return to him. He loves you enough. Stop playing games with it. Now, he goes on to, with all these things, with all the word and how it offers us joy, not just to avoid sin and praying all these things. And it's coming from a place. And the place it's coming from is found at the end of 13 and 14 when he says this, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression and following the word and submitting to the word of God would provide his word. Then and then only will we be blameless. Will we, will we um, ultimately find uh, innocence uh, from any great transgression? And then verse 14 just rocks us uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Like this prayer is coming from a place of, God, I want to be near you. Like you're my rock. You're my refuge. You're my redeemer. You're the one that I know that joy is coming from. And I know sin is pulling me away, but your word will help me get there. So we desire it. We long for it. Okay. So, um, okay. So, you know, uh, anyway, I do that a lot. I got to stop. Um, so, uh, here, here's actually how I want to wrap up before we do our, our Psalm reading. Okay. Uh, cause I think there's something theologically very dense to the whole Bible that, um, is different. Uh, and this is something called gospel centered preaching than, than, than maybe some of you grew up because the text ends there. Okay. But to understand the nuances of all that it's trying to proclaim in the entirety of the Bible, we've got to do more. We've got to do more. So I need you to open your Bible to uh, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And if you know John, chapter 1, you grew up in church, just breathe. You know, stop thinking you're better than us and learn something with us, okay? Um, so John, chapter 1. Now, here's, here's what we know to be true. Here's what we've learned up to this point, okay? If you know where John is, it's in the New Testament, fourth book. Um, so so here, here's what we know to be true. From the very beginning, it's not God sticking his hand into things and creating until we get to day six where he creates man. It's God speaking. It's his word. That word creates things. And then it is his word that he uses prophets to, to proclaim through. And then it's his word that he's proclaiming through the skies, the, the, the stars, the sun. It's his word. It's his word. He's communicating with his word. And in his word is all the things that we found. It's joy. It's reviving of the soul. 
It's his word. It's his word. And now everyone who is Jewish before Jesus, right, knows all of this to be true. It's, it's eventually in Greek trans, translated logos. It's more than just this. Like this is, is ink and paper, right? You can burn this. You can burn all of our Bibles, but the word of God will still exist, right? Because I can memorize it. I can still quote it. I can still, I can still meditate on it. It doesn't require actual paper and pen. It doesn't require that. It's more than that. And, and the Greeks and the Jews both knew this, and they're, they're trying to get behind and understand this logos, this, this not just this, um, this wisdom or this knowledge, but it's more than just written form. And so here is this word. They all know this. And so the, uh, the, the writer John is now going to take that idea, and he's going to define everything we've been talking about, where all the arrows are going to point towards. And he says this, talking about that word. In the beginning was the word. We know that. Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Now, wait a minute. We know about the word, but God speaks the word. So, yes, it is with God, but it is God. Okay, where are you going with this, John? And then he goes on to say this. I need you to put on goggles, right? Like, like I need you to, to think through the lens of, I've never read this before. So for the first time ever, they're reading about this. They've heard about this, this, guy, you, this guy that we know his name, but maybe you don't know his name yet. There's this guy coming, and he, and he says this. He was in the beginning with God. He, the word isn't a he, it's an it. It's this thing that's out there. What do you mean he? But, but no, 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 the word is a, a he. And then it goes on to say about this word, All things were made through him. Without him was not uh, anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was uh, the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verses 6 through 8, talk about this guy named John the Baptist who was legit. Verse 9, the true light, continuing to talk about this word, this him, the true light which which gives light to everyone uh, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. This is the word right now. We we don't know a lot about this word. We don't know who this guy is. You may think you know who this guy is. We don't know who it is so far in this letter, okay? Uh, He came to his own people, but to all who did not receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were uh, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Don't read verse 14, but here's what we know. This word, you read 14, didn't you? You dirty snakes, okay? Okay. So, so what we know, of, what we know at this, this point, we're reading this letter. We don't know uh, uh, who specifically this hymn is, but here we find this word is a hymn. It's a being. It exists, right? And then we come to find out that what creation is proclaiming, that word, what the prophets have been talking about, what is going on in Genesis, how his word was creating everything, becomes flesh. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So if you didn't catch this twist, hear me. All of this up to this point, all of your eschatology, your doxology, your soteriology, 
all, all of the beliefs that you can read in, in any of the prophets, anytime you picked up the book of Genesis, every time you look at the Sedona Mountains, every time you drive through any type of cascade on the Pacific Coast Highway, every single time you read Psalms, Proverbs, all the wisdom literature, every time you open up to any of the Gospels, all of the epistles, every time you try to understand Revelation, all arrows, all of creation, everything that is made has been made through this being, this one, and we're not even told his name yet. We finally find out in verse 17, his name is Jesus. But what's so awesome, and I think very intentionally, this Jesus, who is the word that everything is about, that ultimately, and I quote, it's Jesus that revives the soul. It's Jesus that makes wise the simple. It's Jesus that rejoices the heart. It's Jesus that enlightens the eyes. It's Jesus who endure forever. It's Jesus who is righteous altogether. It is Jesus who warns us from sin. It is Jesus that reminds us of the great reward. It is Jesus who discerns our heirs. It is Jesus who, who shows us our hidden faults. It is Jesus who keeps us back from presumptuous sins over and over. It is Jesus who is our rock. It is Jesus who is our redeemer. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. Every single verse is whispering his name. Every chapter is trying to point to him. All the prophets are trying to make sense. Uh, Paul says this is a mystery that finally we realize everything has been about him. And you cannot understand Psalm 19. You can't understand the stars in the sky rightly without him. It's all about him. I think very intentionally, John, the very first two words, if you have a red letter Bible, you will see um, as, as somebody comes up to him and asks Jesus, this Jesus figure where he is staying, we don't get for 35 uh, verses, we don't get at all him talking, right? We don't get anything for, for him saying anything. And then finally, we get these two statements randomly, right? And I think this is very intentional and it sticks out more if you have a red letter Bible. Jesus turned and saw the one following him and said, what are you seeking? The rabbi asked, hey, where are you staying? And the next statement, so the first two statements are from Jesus, what are you seeking? Come and you will see. I think that's poetic. I think very intentionally, John is saying, listen, it's all about him. Pilate at the end of this book is going to ask, what is truth? And truth is standing in front of him. What are you seeking? Come, you'll see. This is awesome. It's all about him. Hope we would submit to that. Hope he'd be the reminder of our joy, the reason we fight, for, fight against sin and fight for God's glory. Let's stand to our feet. If you don't know, we've, um, we've been reading um, each of these psalms uh, as we've taken them and responding. Uh, and we've, we've taken the psalm, we, we've uh, broke it down in a section, then we have a response. If you can throw that re- response up, John, that would be great. And so on um, this response, um, the first part really comes from Jesus, right? Those who have ears, let them hear. Um, we are going to pray in response to Psalm 19 um, that we would respond rightly to uh, this entire chapter. Meaning, when we read it, how would we go, God, comma, right? Like we read it, we go, okay, God, that's true. Now this. And the the Jews would do this in a corporate response. And our response is going to be twofold. The first part is, as I said, Jesus would say, so we, we see the skies, we, we, we know the heavens are telling us. We, we know the Bible is there. And sometimes we read it and we don't fully understand. Sometimes we see the skies and we just see them for skies. So our first prayer is, give us ears to hear. And we stop overlooking the things that God is so intricately putting in our life. Give us ears to hear. But the second part has to do with our apathy. Has to do with the fact that God has given us his word and, and, and has put the stars in the, the, the sky for us. And we don't fight to listen. We don't put forth, put forth effort to, to, to actually hear what he's saying. And so the two-part prayer is, give us ears to hear, and may we fight to listen. May that be our prayer when it comes to God's word.
Just give us ears to hear, God, and may we fight to listen. I'm going to read it. Um, when I hold my hand out to you, we'll, we'll respond together corporately. The band will help you with that. Um, I'll read a section, then we'll respond together with give us ears to hear, and may we fight to listen. Um, we'll do that a couple times in the psalm. You'll get the hand of it if you haven't done it with us before. Let's do this together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there, nor are there their words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Here, and we fight to listen. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Give us ears to hear and may we fight to listen. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Give us ears to hear. May we fight to listen. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Give us ears to hear. May we fight to listen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We're grateful for Psalm 19. We're grateful for using the servant David. We understand people from millennia have sung this song, have read this poem, have studied it, tried to understand it, and we're grateful that we have an opportunity to do it together now. God, we pray that it would not just be something we read, walk away, that we'd not be like a man who views himself in a mirror and walks away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Father, help us. We want to see your word rightly. God, we want to know it to be true. It makes the, the most simple of us in the room so insanely wise. It revives our soul. It keeps us from sin. It provides joy. May we fight to hear what you have to say. Give us ears to hear what you have to say. That is our prayer. We pray for both diligence and grace. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.